I'll hold it against you. And yeah. Okay. So this is our third of three on demystifying Jewish mysticism. And so I'm going to keep that in the front of my mind, uh, do my best to demystify some of the concepts and uh, also not just get, an, and also move, move uh, readily between our heads and our hearts where religious experience and spiritual insight really dwell, it really dwells so that we don't want to just be thinking about systems, but be kind of uh, uh, doing it alternating so that we can keep our own um, experience present as we connect it to these, I would say, I would say maps that our, our tradition gives us to try to describe these experiences. I would say though, even better than maps, think of them as holograms or um, analogies so that uh, they're, not a they're not covering a specific realm, but they're like, at, they're, they're like um, trying to give a description of experience of both the most m mundane and in front of us experience of the most cosmic. I'll, you'll see what I'm getting at when I describe the tree again. Um, I handed out I talked last time about the tree of life and then show, shared this diagram with you. I brought more copies for anyone who needs a copy tonight. <clears throat> Happy to give you one. Thank you. I have enough. Okay. Anybody? Okay. I think I have enough. Okay, that'll work. That'll work. Anybody else need one? Okay, great. So, <clears throat> I was explaining that the the goal, the purpose, one of the one of the purposes of this Jewish mystical thinking, which I would say is probably true of other mystical systems as well, is to try to describe how the, this unseen infinite realm that we intuit, the infinity that somehow our world is suspended in, and now that we understand the universe itself as being infinite and not a closed sphere, even all the more so, and expanding. And yet here we are, right? How is it that light is pulsing towards our planet and that light, that energy, then sustains and grows a planet? You know, how is it that um, there's, there's an, how is it that each of us within ourselves has a sense that there's a greater unseen realm and I don't and and that somehow this isn't all there is this physicalness 
There's so many ways to describe it. The way Abraham Joshua Heschel said that how is it that we sense not just a what is, but what it ought to be? Let's put it in the moral and historical realm. Why do we as human beings have a sense that we can do better? Where does that come from? You know, what is it? What's our conscience? What is all these things? Brain science is going to get us so far, but not, it won't get us all the way. It'll never get us all the way to the mystery of consciousness itself. How did, con- out of consciousness, how did the world come to be? These are the questions that all seeking minds answer. And, or, ask or I mean, I meant ask. That's what I meant. As they say, yearning is the prayer, you know, asking is uh, what we can do. So Jewish mysticism gives us a map, and gives us several maps, and it gives us some stories. Imagine the bet of Breshit in the beginning, the very first letter of the Torah. That very first letter of the Torah, Breshit. And Breshit is the second letter of the alphabet, right? Its numerical value is two. A bet, you know, the original Hebrew letters were pictographs. So bet Anyone knows Hebrew knows what bet stands for? House. House. Buy it. A bet is a pictograph that was originally a house. So our spiritual, our mystical teachers say that the bet, you know, you read Hebrew this way, mm-hmm. Breshit, that what happened before the first instant of creation, the house that we live in, this bit, is closed to us, as it were. We get to experience the flow of time in the physical universe that begins within the beginning. Does that make sense, everybody? In other words, they're using the Hebrew letters as is a Jewish way to kind of tell stories about the letters. And that this first bet shows us that, that this is our house and that where the house came from is not available to us. And yet, there is the letter Aleph. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Bet means two, because in Hebrew, there are no numerals. Uh, so in Hebrew, we signify nu- numerical values with letters. Bet is two. And bet, therefore, is the world where it says, let there, let there be light, and there was dark light, and there was dark one day. There was second day, and there was sky, shamayim, and mayim, day two. And third day, there was uh, land and sea. So what am I describing? The world of duality. There was me and you. 
there was our experience, which is our experience, of self and other, right and wrong, light and dark. This is the world we live in, a world of, bind, of, of multiplicity, a world of duality. Anyone who studied you know, Buddhism or other traditions, you know, we want, they want to break through the illusion of duality and experience the undifferentiated oneness of all. That would be the mystical quest. It's fair to say that Judaism doesn't consider this an illusion. It considers it a manifestation. Does that make sense when I say that's an important dis di difference? The, it, you know, I've studied, I, I've gone to some Hindu ashrams and they describe the world as illusory. And that there's, and, and uh, that we need to sort of wake up from that dream. And Judaism wouldn't say that exactly. Judaism would say, no, this world is a manifestation that comes out of oneness. And it's real, because this is where the action is. God put us here, you know. But nonetheless, it's not the sum total of reality. The sum total of reality is not two-ness, but oneness. And so Aleph is one. And Aleph is a wonderful, tells a wonderful story. First of all, where, where, what's the most important sentence in the Torah you may know, that starts with an olive. It's, it's when God speaks on Mount Sinai and says, Anochi, I am yod your God who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, the house of bondage, to be your God. So the mystical tradition says that the voice of God as it were, is the letter Aleph, oneness, undifferentiated oneness. And that voice of God, how do you pronounce the letter, how do you pronounce the sound of Aleph? There is no sound. There's no sound. Right? It only becomes vocalized if you put a vowel under it. Then you can say, ah. But if there's no vowel, if there's no vowel, it's... Aleph <coughs> <laughs> is, is awesome. Um, the, 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 the Jewish mystics go to town with Aleph. Aleph is the silent mystery that precedes language, speech, creation, comes before the bet, there's an Aleph, a silent mystery, informing all of our story. And that Aleph is always present. And so the Jewish tradition is that the bet is revealed in the beginning, our world of white and dark, self and other. But when the Jews get to Mount Sinai, they hear the Aleph. And there are tradition, many traditions, because they, they, you know, the rabbis love this. They say, well, what does it mean to hear the voice of God? Right? We don't have the answer to that question. We just, it's great, it's the question again. And they come up with wonderful stories of answers. And they say, well, God didn't speak the whole Ten Commandments. All the people heard was Anochi, I am. 
and the rest of it was how we interpreted that. Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, in other words, we were all present. Does it mean that God said those Ten Commandments and there it is? And of course, that's the plain meaning of the text. But that's not satisfying for, for some of the questioners, some of the seekers who've asked this question. They say, no, God only uttered Anochi, I am. And the rest of it flowed from there and was brought to, into human language by Moses, the moral law. Others say, no, God didn't say I am. God spoke the Aleph. And we, re we received what we received. In other words, it's almost like the transmission that, here, let me ask it another way. Where do ideas come from? You have an idea. Where did it come from? It comes from an unreachable, indescribable place. That's the Aleph. The Aleph is the flash of insight, for example, that precedes a thought. A thought then may generate into speech or action. So where does it all come from? That is like saying, what happened before the bet in Bereshit? Not temporally, not in terms of the flow of time, but what comes before any moment? What lies behind the experience or the thought or whatever it is that we're going to say? And so the Jewish mystical tradition says, Aleph, a letter that you, you can, that exists, but that has no sound, that proceed, that, that the rest of the alphabet depends upon. You can't have the rest of the alphabet until you have the Aleph, right? And they even teach that the Aleph makes the unarticulatable impulse through which the bet happens. So what they're trying to describe, in my opinion, is the creative process. And to describe the creative process, we only have one reference point which is our creative process. So each of us, in our own field of creativity, even in a, even in a, in, in a, um, uh, a uh, spirited conversation where you're getting new ideas, um, or if you're an artist, in the moment when you look at the empty canvas, or when you are lying there and an idea comes into your head fully formed and you want to write it down or play it, right? The source of that creativity is a wonderful mystery. Another teaching about Aleph is that it's made up of two yuds. When you draw an Aleph, do you see it? and above. And so there are many teachings about this. The teaching I'll share, I'll share two teachings with you. The two teachings I'll share, one that I love is this teaching of 
Do you know that Vav, what Vav means? No, Vav. Hook. A Vav in Hebrew is a hook. That's why it's drawn like this. It's a hook, right? It's, a, it's like a connector. Um, and that's Vav. That's why when you say V in Hebrew, it means and. So Vav is the right word, the right letter in Hebrew to mean and, because it's a connecting letter. What does, and what does Yud mean, you were saying? Hand. Yud is Yad, hand. And so there's a teaching that um, these are hands reaching, connecting to each other from beyond into this world. It's just a poetic way of looking at the Aleph. Another teaching about Yud is that Yud is, um, in Greek, is iota, right? Iota, like, means, besides being a letter, it's like a speck, tiny. Yud is the equivalent in Hebrew to the point, the point in mathematics that has no, um, no volume or area, but exists. It's the tiniest, every jot and tittle, yud, every yud. So it's the tiniest, not tiniest, it has no dimension. And so there's teachings that the, the place of no dimension is the place out of which we spring. Blah, 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 blah. And my favorite, is in gematria. Gematria is that every Hebrew letter has a value. So yud, the aleph, the value of aleph is one. one. However, the value of yud, anybody know? Ten. Ten. And the value of the next yud ten. is ten, and the value of vav is six. Ten plus ten plus it is twenty-six. Twenty-six is the same value that's right, of yud, whoops, let's see, I'll make it a yud kuf, but it's a hey, vav, hey. So, the name of God in the wonderful wordsmanship and word play and number play of Hebrew equals 26. 10, hey is 5, vav is 6, and hey is 5. So that's 10, 5, 6, and 5 equals 26. So that's the way in Jewish um, number and word play that the Aleph, which means one, and the ineffable name of God, which we don't pronounce, the yud heh vav -Hey, each add up to each other. It's very sweet. I love stuff like that. <laughs> Now, uh, yes? This is like really out there, free associating, but when you were 20... That's the right way to approach this, by the way. <laughs> you can't approach this, you have to like, oh, that makes me think of... No, this is really grasping. But Good, go for it. You said that there was like no sign for the olive until you put the... No sound, yeah. Right, right, and then you said, ah... And it just brought to me the first time, our first class, when you're talking about spirituality and, you know, those moments, and you would go, ah. ah. So you were letting God in, I think. That. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, the, the ah sound, the eh, e, o, oh, these are the unformed 
open-ended sound that we can make um, as opposed to when we start chopping it up into words, which we have to do. That's what makes us human. But what we also have to do is know that there's an inspiration that comes before the word. You can almost think of it, use that word inspiration to continue <coughs> to free associate. Inspire is to breathe in. You can't form words. The words form only on the expiration, on the exhale. So to be in, you have to inhale, you have to take in before you can shape that out breath. And God blew breath into the form that God had made and behold, it became a living being, you know? So we are inspired by the Aleph that you then shape into words. That would be the way that Jewish mystics describe the Torah. The Torah is not, it's God's word, but not exactly. God's word lays right behind every word of the Torah. Every word of the Torah points to the <clears throat> Aleph that hovers behind it. And that's why Mount Sinai is the moment when the children of Israel all got it unmediated for a moment. And the Midrashim about what happened at Mount Sinai are fantastic. They, they say, when God spoke, because there's trying, the rabbis were very sophisticated. They don't think, as, as we might say today, that talking to God is like a long-distance telephone call, you know, or like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a person's voice only louder, you, you know, or, or any of that. They, they were very sophisticated. They understood the paradox of saying God speaks. And uh, they, um, they said, so they tell stories about it, that at, right before the, right before the uh, Ten Commandments were received, not a bird chirped, not a cow lowed, nothing moved. There was an utter, complete stillness. And if you think about our spiritual experiences, they emerge from somewhere. When, when Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, when he's running for his life from King Ahab, do you know this story? So Elijah in the Torah is compared to Moses because they're the two, I'd say probably the, the two greatest prophets in the Tanakh. And Moses goes to the mountain with all the children of Israel, and it's earthquakes and thunder and smoke and, you know, the shofar blast. It's just unbelievable. And the people are terrified. Elijah travels for 40 days and 40 nights to get to the mountain of God. And it says, first there was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a great wind but God wasn't in the wind. And then there was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And then, do you remember what it says? Still small. Well, just actually, listen to this. It's translated as a still small voice. The Hebrew is called mama daka, which actually means, the mama means um, silent. Daka means fine, like fine. And Kol means a voice or a sound. So 
a, more, a better translation even than the still small voice is the fine sound of silence. And out of that, and this, is a, th- this requires, just like when Moses has to turn aside at the burning bush, this requires Elijah being ready to perceive what our tradition calls the Aleph, hearing the Aleph. Does that make sense, everybody, in a way? Uh, that it's out of that place where we're not thinking, it's not my thought, we're not pushing, we're not doing, we are ready to receive, and we allow the world universe to speak through us. It's a mystery. It's a glorious mystery. Artists, in particular, know that they have to allow the universe to speak through them. We are each beautiful instruments. Each of us, whether we're knitters or um, uh, cooks or uh, artists or um, therapists or, you know, what we're doing in those moments is trying to, well, you have, it's the, the paradox of not trying and not trying, of being receptive to what's coming through us. Where is it sourcing from? That's why Jewish tradition loves the Aleph, the place before in the beginning. So I'm riffing, right? That's the only way I know how to talk about this stuff. Any, any questions before I look at this, gra- this uh, diagram with you? So one of the great insights of Jewish mysticism, which makes it incredibly relevant for today, is that it doesn't think of God as static in any way. God is not static. God is not in a place. God is not a thing or a being. God is the energy always present, out of which manifests our world. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? In Jewish mysticism, God cannot be reduced to any image or any metaphor, single metaphor. A king on a throne? Nope. Um, None uh, outside? And not here? Nope. God is the energy out of which our world manifests. Given that it's the 100th anniversary of Einstein's theory of relativity, what, last week? Um, Who changed the way we look at the universe in the modern era, um, along with the emergence from there of quantum physics. It's the idea that say, for example, light is both a wave and a particle. That somehow the, 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 it's not either or. There's energy and there's manifestation of energy as matter. But we are also, in our modern understanding, a bunch of atoms in 
a, an innumerable, innumerable number of atoms in constant motion, right? Out of which somehow manifests our physicality. So this is also the understanding of Jewish mysticism. This world is a wondrous manifestation of what we'll call divine consciousness. That there is an awareness and that is not in any place and cannot be located or reduced to uh, a name or a definition that exists out of which our lives spring. And it didn't happen at some point in time. It is happening at every imaginable moment. The world is being called into being at every moment. That's why in the morning prayers where it says, Hamechadesh b'chol yom tamid ma'asei b'reshit, Hamechadesh b'tuvo b'chol yom tamid ma'asei b'reshit, who renews each day with goodness uh, uh, the wonders of creation. The mystics understand, that's the morning prayer when you appreciate the Yotzer Ha'or, the, the, the creator of light. Um, that is the moment, uh, th that, that mystical understanding of that is not that, oh yes, um, thank you God for the sunrise. It's that at every moment the world is being called into being. We are sustained by an inexhaustible energy source that is not only energy, but is the energy of love and awareness. That's what the mystics come back with. When people have an experience that, they, that blows them out of the water, you know, it's an experience of the universe as somehow being coherent and loving in a way that we'll never be able to fully describe. In the Kaddish, what does it say in the Kaddish? Um, you know, we're so used to saying the Kaddish that uh, we can forget. Um, it says, La'ela min kol berchata v'shirata. You're beyond anything we could bless or sing, beyond all tributes and anything we could say about you and let us say Amen. That's the Kaddish. We, it's, it's an amazing prayer. It's that, you know, you're yitbarach, v'yishtabach, v'yitpa'ar, v'yitromam, v'yitnaseh. You're glorified and magnified and exalted and wondrous and extolled and acclaimed. And uh, in fact, la'ela, you're beyond any of that. We reach with our hearts and our words in your direction. I have a whole new appreciation of the Kaddish, let me tell you. Uh, one of my teachers, one of my friends and teachers, Cantor Michael, as foremost, was, was saying that the reason the you know how many times the Kaddish comes in the service? Like, we're doing Kaddish again? It's, it's, he says it's more than punctuation in this teaching. Yes, it's supposed to be there as punctuation, but I think it's more than punctuation. He said it's like your palate cleanser. <laughs> he said, he told he's a chazan and he really, he really appreciates it. He says, you've said all these prayers and all these words, and then you have a palate cleanser where you say, actually, whatever God is, is beyond anything we could say or utter. Okay, now let's keep talking. <laughs> you know, because we, we, want, we want to praise, and we will never reach it. Anyhow, um, I ranged somewhere there. So I have to range back. Okay.
Okay, so um, in Kabbalah, in the Tree of Life, God is not located in any one of these constellations. God, as it were, is the energy that flows through them all. Constantly flowing. Constantly flowing. And these ten locations are ways of describing attributes that we experience in being alive, attributes of the universe. And it's not only flowing, as we discussed the tree last, um, last week, it's not only flowing down, it's also flowing up. So, look, look at this chart for a second, and you'll see that at the very top, there's the sphera called Keter. Keter literally means crown. But each of these svirot, each of these attributes of God, is actually more like a constellation of meanings and have many names. So another name of the crown is called Ayin, nothingness. Or, it doesn't say this here, Ein Sof, without end. In Jewish mysticism, if you can imagine this as being the creative process. There is a place beyond conception for us. A place that we can only like point at with our eyes closed. It's the place where, our, where when, we, when I would lie in bed as a kid and try to imagine the end of the universe, I don't know if you did stuff like this. And I would, I would go in my mind and I'd say, well, what if I get to a brick wall? But what's beyond that? No end, right? The place our minds cannot wrap around. And the idea is that the origin of, of our world, and this is all metaphorical, how could it be anything but? Um, is a place beyond even thought. And then, if you imagine that from this place, the energy is flowing and goes into a place called Chochmah, wisdom, primordial point, beginning. Chochmah is understood in the Jewish mystical map as the flash of insight. It's also considered to be one of the important things to notice about this chart is that it has three columns. And the three columns represent opposites or counterparts, shall we say, duality. And the center pole represents where these dualities merge and synthesize into a sense of oneness. Does that make sense, everybody? That's part of how this map is constructed. So the side with Chochmah on it is considered the masculine side, and the side with Bina on it is considered the feminine side. It doesn't really work all the way, but that's what the tradition does. And when we're saying masculine and feminine, generally Jewish mystics are not talking about men and women. 
They're talking about the receptive, the things you think of when you think of um, symbolic masculine feminine, the, um, the masculine quality of, um, of uh, insemination. Uh, there's a lot of sexual stuff in the Kabbalah, by the way, because they're trying to describe the creative process. Um, and all we have to describe it is our experience, our experience of, say, having an idea and then manifesting it, our experience of sexual union and manifesting a new being, right? So they take every metaphor they can get their hands on to try to describe this mysterious process. And so the masculine is the more driving and the feminine the more receptive, the masculine the more, uh, the, uh, the feminine is container more and the masculine is what fills the container. And uh, it's speaking in those terms and it's speaking also in medieval analogies, so if we need to bust those up, that's fine. We can come up with other words to describe it. But we are, by and large, you know, now we know that gender is on a spectrum and that's becoming clear. Uh, and yet, the world is organized basically around male and female, and now we have to make space for all the variations that we know have always existed. Okay, so Chochmah is the flash of insight. And if you imagine, I'm just going to, there's erasers on up top. Oh, thank you. Here, I'm going to, you know, I'm going that's a chalk eraser. Let's see about this one. This looks much more promising. So I'm going to let this name go because I, Careful not to write it. Okay. Okay. So if you imagine this top one here, imagine a flow like this, and then a flow like this. Bina is, is the word for understanding, contemplation, reflection. All of those are hiponanut. And you see it also has a name, the palace and the womb. And those are just some of the names. So imagine a flash of insight that you have that you then chew on. You let it gestate. You don't even chew it. You say, you let it ripen. You let it, you let it come to a term, you know? So there's the flash of insight that then needs to go into a period of contemplation. They're describing their own creative process and it, trying to uh, also say, maybe this is, this is how out of nothingness <coughs> our world comes. And after some time, what's missing, look on this chart. Do you see where all these lines cross here right above there. Often that gets uh, a little dotted circle and gets called da'at. Da'at means awareness, consciousness, knowledge. Da'at is the product of a flash of insight that has had time to germinate and become ripe and then it manifests as knowledge and understanding. Now, by the way, 
you may know this. Chochma, Bina, and Da'at make an acronym. Anybody? Chabad. Chabad. The Chabad get their name because uh, they, they call themselves the Chochma, Bina, and Da'at gang. Okay? <laughs> they are, they, what I mean is, is that uh, Chabad was a Jewish mystical movement. It was one of the early Hasidic movements. They were all based on this stuff. On, and so they are the wisdom, contemplate, insight, insight, wisdom, wisdom, insight, and uh, knowledge. That's where their acronym comes from. Okay, so then what you have here then is a triad of, you might say thesis, or you might say this is, Chochmah has no place, and a flash of insight has no value unless it has a place to inseminate itself, to ripen and grow, right? And so you need both the flash of insight and the receptive womb to carry it so that you can get to understanding, dot. And this triad continues because now you move to, you see the next one, it says chesed, Chesed means love, grace. And Chesed is understood to be, imagine, unbounded love. Overflowing without end. That's grace. We talked about grace the first week. Freely given, and what do we do with it? It has to be channeled, right? In order to have effect, unbounded love has to be channeled. And so it channels into this side called gevura, which means power. Or din, is it's another other name, judgment. The way that the mystics think about this is that overflowing love needs to be channeled through discipline. Power, love, Martin Luther King made a great line. He said, love without power is anemic. Power without love is evil. Right? It's a great saying that he had. Uh, love with, without boundaries <coughs> has no form. How is it going to manifest in the world? We're going to ask this question over and over again. How does insight manifest, flash of insight manifest in the world? There's a process for manifestation. How does love manifest into the world? It has to be mediated through boundaries, discipline, a sense of um, a, a container. When that is when that is in balance, when that is in balance, you get to this center here called Tiferet. What does Tiferet mean? Beauty, splendor. Um, also, uh, 
It has a lot of names. Harmony. Um, uh, it's also known as yud Hey vav Hey because Kabbalah loves using every possible name they can come up with. So yud Hey vav Hey. it's also known as the sun, S-U-N. Um, it's, and the Shekhinah is known as the moon. Everything gets a name because it's, they're trying to give a map, not of a specific place or time, but like a template for how the world works in duality and oneness. And Tiferet is radiance. This love, mediated through power, leads to a balance point of radiance. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, we're stuck on, on what power means. Yeah, good question. Um, I understand power to be, in, the, in this Kabbalistic model, um, boundaries. Uh, the, how shall I say that? Uh, think parenting. Um, this is how I think about it. Uh, that my overwhelming, unbounded love for my children is not effective until I've learned how to direct it in an effective way. And power is my ability to take my love and know how to channel it in an effective way. So I think that's the best I can do right now. Think of the word discipline. Okay? Discipline, uninformed by loving energy, is like slavery. Right? Loving energy, uninformed by discipline, is not what our kids want. They may scream and cry about it, but uh, um, uh, it's the intelligent it's the intelligent channeling of our loving energy. The Kabbalistic story, they tell a story about how evil came into the world. Again, these are, these, are, these are stories they're trying to tell to describe this. And they say evil came into the world when Din, judgment and power, decided it didn't need the rest of the system and broke off on its own. This is a great story. And evil was the origin of power operating in the world uninformed by love. Pharaoh is the classic example of that. In, he had all the power, all the discipline, all the ability to make things happen that he wanted to make happen. And he thought, what does Pharaoh say? I don't know your yud hey vav hey, and I'm not letting you go, because I'm the king of the Nile. Right? So the source of evil in Jewish thought about Kabbalah, because, you know, evil, if everything comes from the one, and this is a whole other class, then evil can't be a separate creation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, so evil is the part of creation that thinks it doesn't need the rest of the part. That's the power that, doesn't, that thinks it doesn't need to be informed by compassion. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice way of describing it, isn't it? I use that a lot because I think I think when anyone is a pharaoh and thinks of themselves as the source <coughs> and the, the, the word, my word is law, then they are, uh, they are, whether they are a petty tyrant or an unfortunate dictator, unfortunate for everybody else, um, they, they create evil. 
That's the source of evil. So, um, so we have another triad here. Love, discipline, in dynamic balance, radiance and splendor. And I'm pointing to parts of my body. I'll get to that in a little while. Then the, 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 the flow continues. This is called netzach. Netzach is the least clear of, to me, even as I've tried to reflect on it over the years. Uh, but netzach means victory, drive, um, and uh, uh, again has that same kind of um, driving quality as the, on the right side of masculine. Uh, netzach by itself has to flow into this section, which is called hood. Hood means, it says here splendor, it's beauty, it's, it's almost as though, what are we going to do with our drive? You know, what, here we have all this drive in ourselves as people, and it has to go into a container, right? We have to make something with that drive. The drive itself, once again, has no value without a container. And this is going to get to the basic Jewish mystical understanding that God, God's self, without a place for God's energy to manifest, is not complete, as it were. Does that make sense, everybody? Yes, on one level, God is ever-present. God energy is ever-present, infinite, and doesn't need us. But our experience is or the way, the way Jewish mysticism describes this, this is very Jewish, is that God without us has no witness. Right? When we say Shema, where we are, as humans, being the receivers of that oneness. And that brings God into the world, as it were. So, what, so because God is energy in Jewish mysticism and not a fixed place, God's, God, we could say, exists, but in terms of our world, only in potential until we become the, the um, manifestation and recognition of that infinite energy that's always flowing. So very much so, Jewish mysticism, like all mystical ideas, is not about, is this a chair? It's about how do we train our attention to recognize the divine energy constantly flowing into the universe, into our world. Yes? Would you describe it as being like a conduit? Conduit is a great word. And we are conduits. Right. right? We are manifestors. We are antenna. We are, we are, we are. We are channels. We don't exist separate from that energy. If that energy wasn't informing us constantly, we would cease to exist. However, if that energy was not flowing through us, and manifesting us, that energy also would be only in potential. And so this is not about science here. This is about the stories the Torah tells about God creating human beings because God wants company. God wants, God as it were, wants someone to know God. Because without being known, you don't exist in a certain way. It's very poignant actually. 
it's almost as to describe that that uh, our relationship to God is a relationship of mutual desire to know each other. Yes. Does that bring ego into the equation, though? For when you say that we exist so that God has, so somebody knows God, it almost says to me that there's some ego involved with God. God's ego? Yeah. I wouldn't call it God's ego. I would say, let me put it this way: the universe isn't neutral. The universe wants life. Now, where is that? What What does it mean when wants? The universe is so designed as to love complexity, as to want to manifest life and manifest <coughs> consciousness. We are not, when we're talking in the religious language of Jewish mysticism, talking about a mechanistic universe or a universe that is that has no underlying thrust to it. The Jewish, the mystical understanding of the universe is that is that. I guess I like to say it, um, that consciousness precedes creation, not the other way around. That creation didn't happen by random accident, and then in some amazing other uh, 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 incredible sequence of random accidents, consciousness was born. That might be true. Well, I'll never know. However. The Jewish mystical idea, and also my own feeling, which I'll never be able to prove, uh, and my own experience, is that consciousness pre-exists our existence. God said, let there be light, is the myth, is the Genesis way of saying it. And we, we and life in general, emerges in a desire for consciousness to become manifest here in the physical world. And we human beings are a manifestation of that ever-flowing infinite consciousness. And in a manifestation of that ever-flowing infinite consciousness, we are in a position to become aware of that and to offer our thanks back to the infinite ever-flowing consciousness of creation. Is that true or not true? However, Think about, the, think about the, the meaning and sense of connection it would give your, one's life to live as if that was true. As if we are indeed a manifestation of an infinite consciousness that our tradition calls yod heh vav that speaks to Moses from that burning bush. We are a manifestation of it, blessed with the capacity to be aware that that's so, and to search how to reunite ourselves, and to bring glory to, and to be vessels of and servants of that infinite consciousness. That's the religious imagination. Does that make sense, everybody? Yes. Yes. It's the best I can do, so if it doesn't, I, I forgive me. Um, but um, that, with that as a foundation of one's experience, life is all about finding out how to be good witnesses and manifestations of that consciousness. Because we are part of a system. And that's where Jewish mysticism comes in. That's where this tree comes in. I'll, I'll show you why. Because the harmonization point of drive and majesty or hood, we didn't describe it too much. Think of it as beauty. 
a container for, your, for the drive is called yesod. And yesod means foundation. Of these, Is that a phone? Yeah, sorry. But that's awfully nice. Yeah. It's awfully nice. Only when it's low like that. Okay, well, I, I, I'll, that's a very nice ring. Um, so, through this process, we finally reached the base of the column called Malchut, the kingdom also known as Shekhinah. Shekhinah being the, the, the close presence of God, the feminine presence of God, the God, the aspect of God. Shekhinah means to dwell. A Shekhinah is a neighbor. God says, Vasuli um, Mikdash, build me a, a sanctuary. Vashachanti betocham, and I will dwell within you. Right, so Shekhinah is this is, this is the part of the flow that, in, that we then experience as our world, as kingdom, or as Shekhinah, as God's presence here with us. So now, because, it's, because yeah. it's a feminine quality, we have to assert ourselves to reach, reach it. Um, we have to assert ourselves to reach her, and at the same time, in the Jewish tradition, we are her. Because we are also, see, it's, it, it, go, it always goes back and forth, because we are also the receivers of all of this. So, Shekhinah is our world. We need to relate to Shekhinah as, in our, as, as the masculine lovers of Shekhinah, in one sense, and in another sense, we are Shekhinah, receiving the energy of God. It's this isn't a, a map is just the wrong word. It's more like a um, an associative poem or something like that. So you're right, and it's also described in this way because what they're getting at is that all of creation is an act of. And then you see all the other lines on your on your tree. Mm -hmm. I didn't write them in. It means that in addition to this flow that we're describing this. It, this, uh, um, there's also all the other channels, that's what they're called, tzinorim, all the other channels through which the divine energy is constantly flowing. This means, and this becomes very important in Jewish mysticism, that we can influence the flow. Influence is a good word, because it means to cause to flow, right? So that God's energy is flowing Always. But we can also draw that energy into the world. How? What would be the Jewish answer to that? Doing mitzvot. Doing mitzvot? Doing mitzvot with intention. Right? The mitzvahs have been given to us in order to draw God's holy energy into the world. So when we do mitzvot in Jewish mysticism, we're not just helping somebody else or doing good deed. We are actually influencing more of God's energy to manifest in reality. Every time we do a mitzvah, 
in Jewish mysticism, it has cosmic dimensions. And that can get very dangerous, right? This is one of the dangers of mysticism because it, it, it can make you grandiose, right? A person, and people come up with theories that people who are, who are either mentally ill or so inclined you know, to grandiosity might say, oh God, this next, this next thing I'm going to do could be the difference between peace and war in the world, you know, it's like that kind of grandiosity. We're going to bring Mashiach now. You know, so it's a danger. On the other hand, it also could be an inspiring idea that by doing this mitzvah now, I'm contributing to the potential of God, the unseen energy manifesting more in the world. That brings to one of the key things about Judaism in general and Jewish mysticism in particular, which is that God, as it were, needs us. Now, this is not science. This is the language of love, right? This is language of relationship. God needs us to be, to draw God's energy into the world. Without our participation, it gets blocked. So if we are not aware that we are channels for the divine energy and don't do mitzvot, mitzvot in the broadest sense, uh, then we are um, blocking, we are preventing the fullness of God's potential, of the potential of love and awareness, of um, highest consciousness, of the possibility of truth and peace. You know, all the ways that God gets described, they don't manifest in the world if we're not participating. We're, and that's why you'll hear in Jewish parlance, we're God's partners. Right? But we're not God's partners like we're holding hands. Not in Jewish mysticism. We are God's partners in that, in that God only exists in potential in human affairs. God's, God's manifestation is when we realize we are channels of divine energy and act as such. Uh, so that in Jewish mysticism, morality and ethics and spirituality are totally intertwined, which is very Jewish, if you follow what I'm saying, mm -hmm. and very beautiful. Uh, did I see a hand? Me? Yes. Well, all these things are going through everybody. Yes. Whether we know it or we don't know it. Right. The mystics think they know it. I, I, well, they're studying this stuff. Well, they're doing their best to describe uh, what they're what, that that what I'm trying to describe in words to you. Yeah. So I'm thinking, does do they think it goes through them more, or their Mashiach is coming? I'd love to hear about that because I have my own feelings about that. And is there any? So, the answer, the, the answer is obviously complicated. Any mystic who's, uh, there, in all traditions, there are groups of spiritual sort of like students who think they've got the key, and they are going to, they are going to make it happen. Redemption's going to happen now, because we finally understand what needs to happen. That's the kind of grandiosity um, that uh, it leads to a lot of fervor 
but also a lot of danger because it's, uh, it, 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 it rides into egomania, right? So the mystics that, uh, so because we're human and mystics are human, we are all prone to thinking we're, too, we're much more important than we are. Um, you, know, you know the saying from Simphlopunum uh, that you should have two notes in your pockets, one in each pocket, and one says, I am dust and ashes, and the other says, for me the world was created. And wisdom is knowing when to pick which note out of your pocket. Do I need a dose of, I'm not so great, or do I need a dose of, no, what I'm doing right now is very important. <laughs> so I'm not answering your question very well. It's a danger. Uh, it's a danger when you think that you're about to save the world or bring God's, bring the final moment. So I have, so there's a whole other stream of Jewish teaching that says, no, 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 no. Mashiach's going to come when Mashiach's going to come. We are not in control of the end. All we can do is do what we can do. And, you know, the most famous saying is um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was approached and said, the Messiah is coming. And he was planting a, a sapling. And he says, I'll come when I finish my gardening. You know, I'm going to plant the sapling and then I'll come. Uh, because any time we get into a fervor of Mashiach's coming now, uh, we, it's, it's never led to good things. <laughs> um, however, the word tikkun olam, which you might be familiar with, repairing the world, is actually a Jewish mystical concept. And it originates in Tzfat, pretty much, in the 1500s, in the 16th century, when a group of mystics gathered around Isaac Luria in Tzfat, and they were an incredible bunch. When we sing Shalom Aleichem and Yidid Nefesh and Lechadu Di on Friday night, they wrote all those. Wow. Right? Those are all from the, from the mystics in Tzfat. And they would, they would go out into the field outside Tzfat. Have you been to Tzfat? Yeah. yeah. So they would literally go out, into, dress in white, go out into the field on Erev Shabbat, and they were calling the Shechina, and Yudhei Vavhei, is the masculine aspect of God in, in the tree, and Shekhinah is the feminine aspect of God, to come together in marriage. Come, my love, greet the bride. They thought that they were repairing the universe on Shabbat. Tikkun Olam. Repairing, Olam means both, remember, Melech Olam doesn't just mean world. Universe. Universe, all it is. So, Tikkun Olam is actually a mystical concept. This is an interesting whole other talk uh, that eventually, in our much more um, uh, this-world-oriented age, got, became meaning repairing this world. For the mystics, they were trying to repair the cosmos itself because they felt that if they could, with their deep intention, create the marriage of masculine and feminine in the cosmos, that all would be one again, and the Messiah would come, and the world would come, would be one. Bayom hahu, yiyeh Adonai echad, ushmo echad, on that day, God will be one, and God's name one. L'taken olam b'malchut shaddai. These are from the Aleinu prayer. Uh, anyway, uh, I think we have to be very skeptical about when people think they're about to bring the Messiah. I'm, I'm thinking, even thinking that the Messiah is going to come ever, 
Yeah, you know the joke of, uh, uh, did I tell this joke already? Uh, I, I was telling it recently about Schleimala, who is the town nudnik. He can't hold a job. He can't, he can't hammer a nail straight. He can't do anything right. So they give him a job. They, his job is to sit at the edge of town and watch for the Messiah and see if the Messiah is coming. And, huh? Yeah, yeah, you, some of you may know this joke. And somebody says to him finally, he's been doing it for years, he's, and, and someone says to him finally, you know, what kind of job is this? I mean, you just sit here all day. He says, well, the pay isn't so great, but the job security is great. <laughs> I like that joke. Okay. So... So our task as, as human beings who are created in God's image, meaning for the mystics, we have the capacity to know and be aware of the glory of creation and to perform acts of love and kindness and justice. We have that capacity. For us to realize our capacity as made in the image of God means to, through that, through that realizing of our own capacity, our own true nature, we draw the flow ever and ever more into the world, not once, but continually. And, and so it says in Isaiah, and the day will come when God's, everyone will, will, will uh, be intimately knowledgeable of God like the waters cover the sea. It's the, their goal is, they're mystics, their goal is to bring a, a state of consciousness into the world, a state of awareness, where we're all looking at each other and saying, God is everywhere. This is it. You know, this is God's house. Where we're all in that awareness at all times. For a mystic, that would be the fulfilled world. Right? Uh, out of that would come, because we're aware that each isn't made in God's image, out of that would come, we would treat each other well. How could you not? Right? Now this is obviously an incredibly idealistic vision. You know, it says in Deuteronomy, one of my favorite lines in Re'e, is it says, if you open, open your hands to the needy, there will be no more poor people in your land. There will always be poor people in your land. So open your hands to the needy. It's this great line where, where it's like, if you did, really did this, then it would all be so. But in the meantime, there's always going to be poor people in the land because we're never going to get, get there. So, but still, the goal is to bring that into the world. The other way that Jewish mystics describe this flow of the tree is with a whole other story that Isaac Luria tells in Sfat. And he tells, and he tells another story of what happened before the bet in Breshi. This is almost like all of this gets us to the bet. Do you know what I mean? Or another way of describing it is uh, when God says on day one, let there be light. And then God on the fourth day creates the sun and the moon, the sun to light the day and the moon by night. The rabbis ask, wait a minute. Well, then what's the light on the first day? Do you know what they call it? The Or Haganuz. Did you ever hear that phrase? It's a great 
it comes from the Talmud. It's, it's pre-Kabbalah, but Kabbalists love it because it's so, so mystical and it's art. It means the hidden light. That there is a light hidden away in the world that's waiting, that is, let's call it, the light of awareness, the light of consciousness, or as I say at my shul, the light in your eyes. That light is the light of consciousness or awareness. And I like talking about when you, when you, we're lucky when we get to be with a baby because they haven't learned to put their light under a bushel, right? And they'll just look right back and we're transfixed. We're transformed by that experience. That's the hidden light. This is not a light that has a place or is a physical law of physics thing. It's the light in the eyes. It's the light of consciousness. In the beginning, God creates the light of awareness and consciousness. And out of that light manifests our creation. So in the story that Isaac Luria told, which some of you will be familiar with, it's a very complicated story. I'm going to really dumb it down because it's the best I can do. Or let me put it this way. It's too complicated for me. <laughs> but the Baal Shem Tov, when he creates the Hasidic movement in the 1700s, he simplifies the story. So the Baal Shem Tov's version of Luria's story is that in the beginning there was light. Divine, unmediated, unfiltered light of consciousness and awareness. Now, when you think of the Torah, Moses encounters this light on top of the mountain, and when he comes down, remember his face is radiating that light so that people have to turn away. No one can see me and live, says God. And the way that the, that the Lurianic mysticism, Isaac Luria's story, is that that light was so hard to contain, was so impossible to contain in, in, in our physical creation that when God poured the light into creation, creation shattered into countless pieces. And in each piece is hidden a divine spark. So this is not science, everybody, right? This is a story. A story, again, a Jewish story, because it, has a, it also involves our moral and ethical behavior, which is, again, one of the reasons I like being Jewish. It's like, you don't seek the light just for the experience of having the light, right? There's no separating God from how we treat one another in Judaism. You, you can't, you, it, you're not doing it if you're not doing it in how you treat one another, which again, for me, I find Judaism very grounding because it means while I seek all these big, this course is all about these big questions, right? But in the meantime, make sure you're all treating each other right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or else, that ain't Jewish. You know? Um, so anyway, in this story, yes? What are all the pieces? The pieces are called shards or husks. And they are, they're not physical. They are the barriers that now exist between us seeing the divine spark that's in everything. Um, Again, it's more like a, think of it more like a fable that God poured light into the world. The light was too great 
and it shattered the world, and our job is to put the world back together again. Now, on another story, the world is perfect, just as it is, you know. But in this story, the world is shattered. Some people theorize that Luria made this story this way because he and his colleagues were among the exiles from Spain in 1492. Mm-hmm. And that was if you know your, a little about Jewish history, that was as cataclysmic as anything that happened in the Jewish world for a thousand years, uh, um, the exile from Spain. And there were, Luria is a, 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 a Sephardic name, and uh, they, as you know, scattered all over the Ottoman Empire, wherever they could get refuge, if they, or else they had to hide, and you know, go into hiding as Moranos. So some people say that it was a time when the Jewish world had been shattered, and this was a story to give people strength and hope and a sense of purpose in their shattered... Their, they were shattered. We were scattered. So this story is that every person's task is that through their awareness that everything contains a divine spark, whether it's another person, it's an animal, it's a tree, It's, you know, there are divine sparks everywhere. And our task is to liberate the spark by by perceiving it there. Now, let me give you an analogy for how I see this. You're working with a kid. I worked with troubled kids for many years. Or however you want to describe this. And their spark is hidden. If you find the way to see the spark in them in a way that draws it out, then you have liberated that hidden spark that's been in, in exile. This is, the lang- this is a story about relationships, not about the physical universe. We are each in exile as long as our spark is hidden. We're in exile from our source. What is our source? God. The source of all those sparks. The divine light that we all spring from the Ein Sof that, that, that manifests in this world. And if that spark is hidden, then that person is both enslaved and in exile because they're not at home where they should be. Their spark connecting to the source of all. So if we can, at any moment, help that, see the spark, that, the divine spark that's within someone and draw it out, through our loving action, and that would be another way of describing again, figuring out how to use our love in the right way, the skillful way, to let the light shine, then we have redeemed or liberated that spark. And it is once again connected to the whole. So we have helped to repair the universe. Tikhletaken olam. Does that make sense, everybody? Again, this is a story to give us a sense of our place and purpose in the world. Uh, And we want stories that are going to inspire us. Now, I also think that that story is true. That at that moment, you have saved, you have rescued a part of the world. You have put the pieces back together. And then, in Jewish thought, Messiah will come when when all of us somehow have put all the pieces together. Is that going to happen? Not in my lifetime, but there's this saying that if Jews, if Jews, all the Jews in the world 
uh, celebrated two Shabbats in a row. Shabbat in the best sense. That that would be a repair of the cosmos. So it's that same idea where we stopped and loved each other and celebrated together. So again, it's a similar kind of story that should, that's meant to inspire us. And it's the way Baal Shem Tov says it, which is even more, because he was talking, you know, about the, the, the Hasidic movement was a popular revival movement. And he would say, no, 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 you don't have to go to yeshiva in Vilna for 20 years in order to be a good Jew. Right? What you have to do is that every single person has sparks in their, that have been assigned to them to liberate. And so he would insp- that, was, that was the message to his Hasidim. You, the tailor, you know, you have sparks that you're supposed to liberate. You, you know, Tevye the milkman, your cow. Love your cow. You know, love the one you're with. It's like, <laughs> you're important. Every one of us is important because we each have a spark a hidden spark that it's our, or sparks that it's our task to liberate. And then, of course, we can talk again about Perkei Avot, where it says, it's not up to you to finish the task, but neither are you free to desist from it. What makes it all mystical is that, is again, this, this concept that the infinite is manifest through us and in us, and if we become aware of that and act in such a way as to bring more of that infinite light and love into the world, we are participating in the fullness of creation. Rabbi Akiva says in Perkei Avot, he says, Beloved is humankind. Rabbi Akiva speaks in, in riddles, uh, in like koans. Beloved is humankind, for they were made in God's image. Even more beloved is humankind that they are aware that they were made in God's image. That's beautiful. Uh, it's, he's kind of like saying, this is the human factor. Yes, all creatures are made you know, out of the divine, but we, we can be aware that we're made. Now that, you know, I say, that mamish, that's like uh, um, an amazing level of awareness to be able to achieve. Have I used up all my time? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I was just going to ask Chakras. You. Right. Good. Yes, if you'll give me five more minutes. I promise I'd talk about this, and I want to. Because this is a map in an unusual sense, it's a metaphorical map. Another way the mystics do it is they say, this is, relates to the human body. Here, Keter Chochmah Bina, this is where the head is. The right arm I don't know. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, um, is um, uh, is here. The left arm is here. The spine. Uh, the right leg, left leg. Guess what this is? That's the phallus, which pours into the shechina, which is the womb. Right, so it's the masculine and feminine. And so the human form, we are the tree of life. The tree of life is infinite, we are the tree of life. It's yes, and, and, and. And so, you know, there's a system of chakras um, in, uh, in Hindu and Buddhist thought 
that are the energy centers of the body. The crown is the crown chakra. This third eye, where we put our tefillin. And then this is the heart chakra. This down here is the base chakra. So it's not a seven chakra system, it's, but it, it, it includes the base of the spine, our generative energy, our, you call it uh, tantra, right? Um, our, our, our kundalini, I mean, yeah, our right. base energy, our heart energy, our crown energy. So we can imagine at all times that we are the tree of life, which is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And that the energy flowing through us is constantly flowing up and down the tree. Or, and, a beautiful thing happens. We are the tree of life. We are also, in Jewish mysticism, think of a yod. I'll use a different color. Oh, grand. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can we try this one? Is this, yeah, this will work. Yod. Hey. Vav. Hey. Okay? So, in Jewish um, meditative practices, we meditate on being an embodiment of the divine name. The Yud being our head, the hay being our shoulder girdle in our arms. I didn't make this up. Um, I was glad to find out about it because I'm a dancer and I love this sort of stuff. The Vav is our spinal column, which makes sense because it's the connector, right? Mm. And the lower hay is our pelvis and our legs. So we are the divine name in another. So the tree of life, the divine name, so that when you look at someone, there's a Jewish tradition, that when you look at someone, if you can see the image of God, and because we, the image of God, it, the closest we'll get to in Judaism is letters, the letters of the name. Imagine that you're looking at a manifestation of yod heh I found this great diagram, this great drawing, which I've seen before, mm. of the yod hey vav hey. in that form. You can see I drew it up there. Mm -hmm. And the flame, and I thought, maybe that's what the burning bush mm. looked like. I love this drawing. Mm. Um, so, again, this is... The important thing to understand about, about all this is that it's the language of metaphor, it's playful, right? It's poetic, it's malleable, because it's a story. How do you tell the story of creativity, right? It's not something that, it's not, a, we don't have a scientific theory about where inspiration comes from. If you know one that works, let me know. Um, and for those who have had an experience of the universe being beyond words, and a sense that we are connected to that experience, 
then Jewish mysticism is one of the ways of describing how we become aware of that and then manifest that in the world through our unique channel. You know, what prevents it becoming egotistical is that we know that we're not the source of the energy. So what we can do is be amazed and give thanks and practice receptivity so that we can continually be engines of transformation. That's what we are. Aren't we, we, co aren't we collectively the source, though, but not individually the, the source? Isn't it, isn't it written someplace uh, in, in the tradition that somebody says to the Messiah, that they're the Messiah? Run the other way. Yeah. That's yeah. right, that's right. Messiah, therefore, would be in Jewish mystical consciousness, not a person or an individual, but a messianic consciousness. Right. When uh, nation, when, that's right, when the lion shall lie down with the lamb and, the, and none shall be afraid and everyone under their vine and fruit tree. Yeah. Each individual is making their contribution when they do these little things that you're that's talking right. about. That's right. The cobbler and everything. But, but, but no one person can... No one person can possibly do it. That'll either lead to mania or to despair. Yeah. Right? Uh, however, the concept that we all have whenever, you have, whenever you or anyone you know says, why can't we all just get along? Because we know it's possible. When that day comes, that would be the moment when messianic consciousness becomes manifest in the world. Bayom ha-hu, Adonai echad. That's why Aleinu is the prayer of, in that day, everyone, you know, God's name will be one and God will be one. It's a good place always to end the service. You know, we go out with our... That's right. That's right. Well, um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share all this with you. I'll be happy to come back sometime. On behalf of our